I think that the second song we sing is important to remind us that when we come to our worship services together, as I said in our prayer meeting before, that it is not ultimately about getting a certain type of experience out of your time here. It's not even primarily doing certain things towards other people, though our hope is that everyone would leave encouraged and everyone would have an opportunity for obedience towards each other while we're here. But the main purpose of our gatherings is to see, to behold our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously he is seen clearly, most clearly through the gospel as it is proclaimed. He is seen in his word. And so believer, set your bar very high when you come to God's house. And do not leave satisfied until you have left seeing him. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, we're continuing our study on these verses. We will finish our uh, detailed exegesis that we began last week. This is the third installment uh, in a series on these verses as we have stepped down and slowed down, if you will, to smell the roses in these five verses. So I will read them now with you, and then we'll pray. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as our partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, what a feast we have had already from your word and from songs about your word. And we pray that that feast would continue now as we examine more closely some of the words that we have in your book. I pray that you would give us the right attitude, the right heart, and that we would be eager to know these things and embrace them as your people. And if you would right now, pray for yourself that the Lord would give you understanding and a mind to hear and eliminate distractions from your heart. And if you would also pray for me that I would use words that make sense and that it would be clear and encouraging. Father, we do love you and we thank you for giving us this time. We trust you to do with it as you will as we offer it to you as a pleasing aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I want to say a few things by way of recap because, as I said, this is the third installment in a mini-series on these first five verses. Um, Peter's exhortation is to elders. We talked about who they are, what they are, why they're being exhorted, and the heart of his exhortation to them is what we see starting in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the central exhortation of these verses. And what we'll see today is essentially qualifying or clarifying what that means. We're putting, if you will, hedges around the practice of oversight in God's house. We're taking a long time on these verses because I think in our culture, in, in somewhat more conservative theological evangelical circles, we're aware generally of what the basic qualifications for elders are. But there's also a job description. There's basic qualifications. You can see this with almost any job that you apply for in secular realms. There's basic qualifications, and then there's the job description. And I think there can be a disproportional emphasis on the qualifications and not enough focus on what the job description is. And Peter helpfully gives us more of that flavor in these verses. He doesn't address qualifications necessarily at all. They're implied. Be like Jesus, right? Be a mature Christian who can actually do this. But what is the job? What is it that we are supposed to be doing? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. We can talk about qualifications till we're blue in the face, but there are many men who in the past have met these qualifications that we find in Scripture just fine, but have had no business being a shepherd. A lot of them end up at seminary. So, I also, the the reason we're taking a long time here on these verses is that I'm summoning men to this biblical idea, this biblical picture, to embrace, to have the heart of a shepherd. To not only be qualified, but to want to do the job according to the Bible's picture. So next week, in fact, to continue this series, uh, praise God, my father-in-law will be here with us to preach on this very topic. Uh, He's probably the person I look up to most in terms of what it means to be a faithful shepherd. He's been the pastor at a single church for almost 25 years through great trial. And hopefully you'll get a sense of that next Lord's Day. So you know it's just not some 34-year-old punk telling you these things. Uh, These things are deeply rooted in our heritage as Christians going back for thousands of years and held dearly by brothers who serve in the trenches. We talked about also why this section is here. I want to say and remind you again that faithful shepherds Doing the work, as God commands, is an obedience issue. Not just meaning we better have elders so that we're obedient to the commands about elders. Rather, and I would say in some sense more importantly, having faithful shepherds overseeing God's flock enables the church to obey. Because he says, so, in verse 1, after a long list of very difficult commands... For all Christians to obey, he says, so I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. To help the church be obedient, then you need faithful shepherds. And last week we began the straight exegesis of 
these verses. The week before, we just talked about the word shepherding because a lot of ideas are supposed to come to your mind when you read the word shepherd in the Bible. And because none of us are shepherds, I don't think uh, we have a few people with goats, but a shepherd in the Old Testament or first century sense, uh, none of us are that way. And most of us probably don't even know someone who is that way. And we got the use of modern technology to shepherd. They even use drones shepherding now. So the image of what 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 comes to your mind when you hear the word shepherd is very different from what a first century person would have thought. So that's what we did in the first week. And last week we did straight exegesis, like I said, and we got up to the statement exercising oversight. And what we discussed, and this is this is what you needed to know from that, that shepherds, the shepherds of God's people, must have a see-to-it attitude, making sure that everyone is cared for, that everyone is maturing in Christ, not just our favorite sheep or our families. The example of Jesus, then, is what all of this is looking towards. Peter has already introduced Jesus as the great shepherd and overseer of your souls. We'll look at that verse at the end of our time together today. He is the one who had the ultimate see-to-it attitude. It was our problem. It was our mess that we created. It was our sin. It was our alienation from God. And he decided, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. He decided of his own freedom to come and make our mess his problem. And that's what the mold is, the model is for all faithful shepherds. So now we resume the exegesis with three important contrasts. Three contrasts that adorn biblical oversight. That's how the grammar of this text worked. Exercising oversight, and then he qualifies that in three ways. He pairs up extreme contrasts to show us what it is. And the point is, before we even get into it, that you need to know is that there are many, many pitfalls in seeking to exercise oversight. Think about this. Peter had to write these exhortations to elders that were serving actively in the church. They needed to hear it because the risk is really there for all those who serve in this capacity. So this isn't a doorkeeping text, meaning you got to get this sorted out before you get in there. He's saying to those who are already serving, you need to beware of these things. These issues left unchecked will not only mean that ministers, pastors, elders do not minister like Jesus, but also that the church where they Shepherd, if they're falling into these traps, will become a very unhealthy place. So let's look at these three do's and don'ts, if you will, these three contrasts, so that we can avoid becoming a very unhealthy place. So three contrasts of faithful shepherding or oversight. Number one, joyful servanthood. Joyful servanthood. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. The word here that is translated under compulsion is not used in this exact form in any other place in the New Testament. This is the only place it occurs. But it's, it's a derivative of two different words that are used in many other places. And the imagery is that of being put under the arm of someone. The analog in our language that we use is being strong-armed. That's the image 
at play. And he's not talking about shepherds strong-arming other people. He's saying, do not serve in your capacity as an elder feeling under someone's strong arm. Don't, don't do this if you feel like you're being forced and you have no other way to move forward. So Peter is saying, if your heart is not really in it, if you feel that you have to, because it's the only way, get a new heart. Or another danger, big trap for seminary grads, if you only do it because you have no other way of making gainful employment and your heart's not really in it, do something else or get a new heart. Yesterday. So what would shepherding under compulsion look like? What would the flavor of someone's leadership who's only doing it because they're being strong-armed into it look like? And further, why is this a problem? Why is this a problem? As long as the shepherd does his job, what does it matter how he feels about doing it? Some of us, I think, especially as we're responding to the snowflake culture, we, we dismiss the importance of feeling and postures of heart and affections. Don't you see the point? If you have a guy serving in the capacity of an elder or shepherd, pastor, whatever title you want to use, who maybe loves the money or loves the honor or loves to preach or loves the respect or even just loves to counsel, even if he does everything right on the outside, but he does not love to shepherd out of love for the sheep, it will eat away at his heart. And eventually, it will come out in how he treats, especially weak or stubborn sheep. Paul says to the Corinthians, God loves a joyful giver. And that has many implications that don't have anything to do with finances. This is a sacrifice to the Lord to serve in this capacity. He loves a joyful giver. When a shepherd exercises oversight under compulsion, the foundation of zeal and heart in it begins to erode away. And it becomes just another empty practice. It becomes harsh or worse. And I want, I want to provide a careful nuance here. Being under compulsion is not the same thing as being persuaded to rise to the occasion. I have to think that maybe Timothy needed to be persuaded for the course that Paul had in mind for him. Calvin needed to be persuaded, and that's putting it lightly, to stay in Geneva. As we saw last week, this text, in and of itself, is an intense charge. A heavy burden is laid upon the elders to do exactly what Peter says. And this isn't the only place we see that. So there is compulsion. Think of the other charges. I strictly charge you in the presence of God. There is compulsion. The problem is not necessarily compulsion. Paul himself says of himself, the love of Christ controls or compels us. And he says of his preaching of the gospel, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He, he is convinced, at least I think based on the text, that if he doesn't obey Jesus in preaching the gospel, that his soul would be lost. So that's a sense of compulsion stronger than which you can't get. So the problem is not if you're being compelled, then it is what you're being compelled by. Is it the fear of God or is it the fear of man? Is it the love of God's people or is it the love of your goals? 
and achievements or some future ministry ideal or because you can't make a living doing anything else. So what does Peter mean by willingly then? What, what does a willing shepherd look like? Obviously the opposite of everything we just said. But the word translated here, willingly, means more than just you agree to it, right? Uh, uh, you could probably search all of church history and find almost no one who was serving literally in that sense and as an elder, who, who was bound by contract and would have been executed if they didn't serve that way. Maybe prior to the Reformation that type of ministry exists, but the word willingly here doesn't just mean you agree to it. The only other place this word, this exact word, this exact form is used in the New Testament. It's from Hebrews chapter 10, where he says, the author of Hebrews, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, obviously that doesn't mean if you sin anymore in the rest of your life and your will is involved and you willingly sin because that's every single sin and then the warning or the, the dire consequences would apply to all of us. He's saying if you go on sinning and your heart posture is, I really want to do this, And I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what it'll cost me. I want this. Then the author of Hebrews says, if that's you, not even the death of Jesus can atone for that posture of rebellion until you repent. So, in a more positive light then, in our text, willingly, the the same flavor of the word applies. I really want to do this. I really want to shepherd, and it doesn't matter so much to me how much it'll cost. This is what I want to do. That's a willing shepherd. It's a worthy and honorable sacrifice. You have to esteem it as such in your heart and to keep on serving this way. And for those of you who may not ever aspire to be a shepherd, I hope that would be no one if the Lord would so put it in your heart, or if you never have the chance of being married to someone who would aspire to be an elder or shepherd. The idea is still this. Through God's exhortations in the Scriptures to elders and how they ought to elder, it is a lens through which we see the Lord Jesus because He is the ultimate willing shepherd who did not count it as loss to give up His whole life for the sake of the sheep. So this is why I call it joyful servanthood. This is the question. Will you be happy about dying to yourself more than you've ever had to? Will you be happy about making even more sacrifices than you would have otherwise had to make simply because you love the people of God? He says, as God would have you. Literally, it's something like this. According to God. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. It's more according to God. Willingly, according to God. What does that mean? We just The ESV, I think, misses the sense here, which is rare. But it means that this is how God does it. As the great shepherd, He willingly serves His people. The heart of the shepherd, then, must accord with the heart of God for His people. Does God shepherd his people begrudgingly or out of frustration, ready to whip out the rod and crack it over the head of any straying or stubborn sheep? 
Some pastors must think so. Yet God the Father Himself takes joy in serving and feeding and healing His sheep. Is it your joy? What is your joy? What what should be the summation of your joy as a Christian? I think most of us, in answering that question, would automatically downshift one of the Sunday school answers. Well, it's Jesus. Jesus should be your joy, or the Holy Spirit, or the Bible, or prayer, like what you know, one of those. Just just spin the wheel and you'll get something right. But here's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's mind-boggling. And it's counterintuitive to almost all the theological categories we have. Paul himself is saying, you Thessalonians, you are our glory and joy before Jesus at his coming. He says, uh, John says the same thing to the pastor at the church at Ephesus, to Gaius. He says, I have no greater joy. And if we were writing than Jesus, than uh, the Holy Spirit working in us, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Speaking of those in the church at Ephesus. And it takes a lot of wisdom and digging deep enough to see that joy in God and joy in his people are not two different joys. They're one and the same. Is it a true joy to you? And I'm speaking to anyone who serves in any capacity uh, for the Lord. Is it a true joy to you? Is your joy found in the thriving of God's flock? That's the question. Or are you just putting up with people and stuff for the sake of appearances or the sense of obligation or because you want something else? As Jesus says, I quote it over and over, what are you really seeking? Number two, the the second contrast we have in these verses, zealous integrity. right? And I'm using that phrase in the same way as joyful servanthood. I'm summarizing the, the pairing here. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. There's not much help that we can get by digging too deep down on this word translated shameful gain. It's pretty straightforward. It means the desire for shameful or filthy or polluted gain of any kind. It does not have to be financial. And before looking at the contrast, it should be well noted that even in a church context in the first century where you stood to lose a lot through association with Jesus, the risk was still there that a shepherd would do it for shameful gain. I mean, you could lose your house and all your stuff, even if it was written under Claudius. You could lose your life if it was written under Nero. And either way, it's still the case for a leader in the church to do it for shameful gain. What would shepherding for shameful gain look like? I think there are two different ways. Number one, is setting out at the outset to feed your flesh by means of the influence, power, or gain you get through leadership or honor in the church. I'll say that again. The first way to shepherd for shameful gain is setting out to feed your flesh by means of the influence, power, or gain that you get through the leadership or honor in the church. 
the terrible, terrible issues we've had in our own denomination have underscored that this is a massive problem today. Pastors wearing that title, using the influence and authority they have to get whatever it is they want. This was the same issue with Simon the Magician, was it not? One influence, one more ability to, to go back to that way of honor and glory that I was getting through magic arts. So I'll pay Peter to give me the right to lay hands on people so that they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And you remember how that ended for him. Peter basically cursed him. Hopefully he repented, but here's what Paul says about men like this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And again, this was happening in a case where it was, it was very hard to make any kind of gain for being a Christian. There was very, very little to gain to, compared to our day and nation. I mean, let's be honest. To be a revered pastor, even of a small church, there's a lot of intangible benefits. This is why I am not concerned about the trials in our nation against the church. Even if they get much worse. Because maybe it'll mean that at least some of these posers and those who are in it for shameful gain will shut up and really show their colors. Sign me up for that. We have suffered too long under the ministry of false shepherds. False apostles. The desire for shameful gain is exposed when the going gets tough and you can't feed your flesh anymore. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 9 and 10. Do the best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This was a partner with Paul in his ministry. Suffering with Paul. But then when the going got really tough, when Paul gets in jail in Rome, in his second imprisonment, Demas says, well, I'm out. The Lord providentially uses trial in his church to cast out those who are in love with the world and only in it for shameful gain. The second way that you can shepherd for shameful gain is doing something that is outwardly good and not necessarily feeding your flesh on the surface, but Offering it without integrity. That's a mouthful. Doing something outwardly good, not necessarily feeding your flesh on the surface, but offering it without integrity. And the reason I think this needs to be said is because also in our denomination, we have a problem with plagiarism. People putting forth their work as their own when it's actually someone else's work. That's shameful gain. This was the same issue at play with Ananias and Sapphira, was it not? Here it is, apostles. This is the full price. Holding back some. You remember how it ended for them. They both died. Serving God, doing the right things outwardly, but under false pretenses. It has been said by many others in the ministry that Ministry itself is a place where lazy men can go and hide. And it's really true. It's also a place where workaholics can go and be praised, but the point I'm trying to make here is the opposite, that you can do so, so little. You can rip off from other people 
You can regurgitate the same things over and over and teach through the same stuff on repeat and get praised for it. Just repackage it. There can be a lack of seriousness and a serious application of oneself. This is what Paul says to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approve, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And it's so much more, I just want to say in the context of shepherding, it's so much more than just handling or interpreting the text. There are a lot of people who love to preach, a lot of them end up at seminary, but won't lift a finger in the real shepherding work. The hard conversations. The frustratingly slow work of presenting everyone mature in Christ. The pattern of a person's shepherding ministry is a direct reflection of what that person believes about God. And a direct reflection of what you believe Jesus' ministry to his flock is like. Jesus says, My Father is working till now, and I am working. We are not the Christ, nor, it is, nor is it ultimately up to us to build the church. But presuming on the effort of the Holy Spirit and taking on an unacceptable spiritual version of Se la vi, que sera, sera, or manana is not acceptable in the work of the gospel. It's disgraceful, shameful game. So what does Peter mean by eagerly? And what does an eager shepherd look like? Not for shameful game, but eagerly. Uh, so if all of that, what we just talked about, is the wrong way, that's obvious, uh, then what is the right way to do it? It's fascinating to me that he pairs it with eagerly. If this were just about uh, integrity or honesty, then, then he would have paired it with something else. He would have said maybe uh, not for shameful gain, but honestly, or not for shameful gain, but in purity. But he says eagerly. How is that the opposite of for shameful gain? It's worth noting before I answer that question that he uses the strongest possible conjunction in Greek in each of these three pairings. The flavor, it's called a strong conjunction. It would sound something like this to a Greek listener. You may most certainly not shepherd for shameful gain, but instead you must certainly shepherd eagerly. It's a very strong conjunction. This is why, though, this contrast of eagerly versus shameful gain is why I come up with this phrase, zealous integrity. Have you ever wondered why it was right for the Apostle Paul to go on and on and on and on in 2 Corinthians? We just finished reading through 2 Corinthians in our Bible reading plan. He goes on and on defending himself. Is that appropriate, Paul? This is a lot of ink. A lot of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has just spent Paul defending his ministry. That's a manifestation of this zealous integrity. He's contrasting himself with the super apostles who seem to just want the money and the fame. But Paul says, we desire not yours, meaning not your stuff. We don't want your stuff. We want you. But the same theme is at play in what he says to the Thessalonians. And this passage has become so, so dear to me in trying to understand what it means to be a faithful shepherd in the mold of Jesus. He says to them, so... 
being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So, zealous integrity in ministry is not just about wanting less in return temporally and working really, really hard in teaching and preaching and serving. It's all that and more. It's wanting even to gain people eternally and to give oneself for the good of others. Again, who does that sound like? Wanting not to gain stuff, but to gain people. And willing to give not just his stuff, but even himself for the sake of those people. The outline of the ministry of our Lord Jesus on our behalf to save us at the cost of his own life is the mold that all shepherds should aspire to meet. Number three, exemplary humility. Exemplary humility. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The phrase translated not domineering is the exact same phrase Jesus used in the passage we looked at last week in the whole situation with James and John's mother. Remember the story? Jesus says this to the twelve. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That, that, that phrase translated lord it over is the same construction here that's translated domineering. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. And I wonder, again, if this same story is what was echoing in Peter's mind as he wrote these things. The grammar suggests that. This phrase carries the sense of being overpowering, bullying people, bullying over them, or pushing aside, disregarding, trampling upon This can be done intentionally or carelessly. It's not always an issue of intent either on the part of shepherds. Well, I didn't mean to discourage you. I didn't mean to make you feel tiny. I didn't mean to make you feel like you could not express any concern. What's your problem? My intent was all good. This is very easy to do. And it's sad. And it's sad that we, shepherds, are not more careful with the unintended consequences of our own actions. That lazy or willful lack of attentiveness, care, to make sure that we're not bullying over people, is sinful. And it does not make for a good shepherd. The power of words, the words and even demeanor of one in leadership is easily abused. You can see it all over the place. Husbands, same applies to you. Fathers, mothers, towards your children. What would domineering oversight or shepherding look like? Further, why is this important? Why does it need to be said? There's an old adage, you know it, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That is true within the church. And the tendency, more often than not, is that when a sinful man is given too much power, or really any unchecked power, it will lead to corruption. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of when. But 
This is more than a matter of corruption in obvious ways. You can talk about fleecing the flock, fraud, embezzlement, sex abuse, plagiarism, like that. That's not the type of corruption that's being narrowly focused on here. It's more subtle. The issue here, I think, is against harshness. Again, bullying over people. And the danger is more subtle than you realize. It's not always obvious like the sin of embezzlement. It's not always obvious like the sin of false teaching. As we saw two weeks ago in Ezekiel 34, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And I could talk a long time, a long time, about the danger of harshness or being domineering in the pastorate, but I'll try to keep it brief. There are some men appointed to be shepherds of the sheep who are more excited about the prospect of killing a wolf than they are about the mundane work of feeding sheep. And if you will permit an analogy, to a hammer, everything is a nail. And to a wolf killer, everything can be a wolf. And you will mistake erring and herding sheep as wolves. What is a shepherd like? What, are, what is a shepherd to be like? Well, what do we envision God to be like? How is his might and his power conveyed to you? What do you think about that? What you think God is like both determines what kind of shepherd you want and what kind of shepherd you will be if you aspire and if you seek it out. That applies to fathers as well. What you think about God, how God is as a heavenly father, will map directly to how you are as a father. Sadly, I think the tragic root of harshness in the pastorate and that domineering attitude is not ultimately a character flaw at all. It's a theological problem. That's what they think God is like. Regardless of what they would say on paper or in their sermons, that's what they think God is like. So understand, get this, God's power towards his people is primarily manifested to his sheep as protector, healer, and provider. It's as if some guys in the pastorate want to present God as like an omnipotent football coach or an indomitable ship captain or an austere schoolmaster, or an overbearing father instead of the good shepherd. He will discipline us, and it is not pleasant, as Hebrews said, but he is not arch or rough or mean, and obviously he's not a jerk. In the same way that bad or harsh husbands preach a false gospel in the way they treat their wives, so Harsh and domineering pastors preach a false theology of God. They're telling their people, regardless of what they say in their messages, this is what God is like. In short, there are spiritual bullies in many churches, and many of them end up being pastors. They go to seminary, and that heart, that harsh heart, that hardened heart towards sheep is not checked. You can get really good grades 
and not love the people of God. And they get away with it just like the bullies in the school get away with it through popularity and through oppression of the weak. The effect is that the church becomes a place for mature and strong sheep to hang out, like a hotel, instead of a field hospital where those who are weak, damaged, bruised, lost can come for help, where it's all hands on deck trying to save lives. So what does Peter mean by being an example? Don't be domineering, rather be an example. What would an exemplary, humble shepherd look like? What does exemplary, humble shepherding look like? And here, I hope it can all come together in helping us understand what Peter means by example. There are two senses of the word example. You can be an example for people to follow, and then you can also be an example of something else. And I think both are at play here, but I think the second one is meant here. He's not just saying the elders should be exemplary and everyone should follow their example in the faith. That's obvious. If you're a mature Christian, people should follow your example. But he means something else because the context is Jesus being the great shepherd. And elders who faithfully shepherd are being an example to the flock, revealing to them the nature of Jesus' shepherding care of his people. You're an example. You're portraying the outline of the ministry of the great shepherd to the people. That's what it means here. Primarily. Obviously, both are intended. Paul talks about this when he's writing to the Colossians. This is one of the most mind-boggling passages in the New Testament. Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So in Paul's ministry to the Colossians and to all the other churches, his willingness to suffer for their sake presented to the eyes of their hearts a clear portrayal of the sufferings of Jesus because they didn't get to be eyewitnesses. So instead of going back in time in a TARDIS to see the cross and Jesus hanging there for your sins, Jesus himself sends shepherds who will behave and reenact the ministry of Jesus laying down your life for the sheep. And in that portrayal, in that pageantry, in that reenactment, the sufferings of Christ are filled up to the full for the sake of his body, the church. That's what's going on here. So what then are the characteristics of the shepherding care of Jesus? What are these characteristics that under-shepherds of Jesus are supposed to emulate? Humility. That's why, that's why I chose the phrase exemplary humility. Because if there was one word, one word that you could use to summarize the ministry of Jesus for his people, of course we could say love, but he always had love from before the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world. But what did he need to take on? in order to be the good shepherd, humility. I would read Philippians 2, basically the whole chapter for you right now to prove this point, but we don't have time. We need, shepherds need then a humility of a type that looks and smells and tastes like the humility of Jesus as he emptied himself for his people. Someone with power and influence 
And authority being able to humble themselves and set aside rights and privileges and what is owed for the sake of the good of others is exactly what Jesus did for his people. And it is exactly what we who serve are supposed to do. Jesus did not humble himself and divest his rights and release his privileges and comforts so we would not have to. He did all of that to show us how to. Gentleness and humility, then, are not secondary issues. There are people who mock this idea. I've said this before. Oh yeah, the 11th commandment, be nice. What do you think Jesus is like? Gentleness and humility are not secondary issues. To abandon them in leadership in preference of this, as I've called it before, this chest out, man's man, divine drill sergeant type of shepherding care is an abandonment then of the gospel. Because, because it looks nothing like Jesus. It looks nothing like his ministry. To behave that way in ministry preaches a false gospel. And it is that serious. At least according to 1 Corinthians 13, without love, it's worthless. Let's abandon these mindsets that are, that are sold to us with such zeal. Oh yes, but some will be quick to say, Jesus was harsh sometimes. And it's like those verses are some people's life verses. And yes, he was harsh at times, but it was towards the religiously proud and the powerful, the very ones who were these bad shepherds spoken about in Ezekiel 34. That's what gets Jesus mad. And while we're on the subject, that is one of the main ways to be severe or to be domineering. A way, a way to avoid exemplary humility is to be a Pharisee. Making your conscience or your preferences spiritually binding on other people. Even if you would never say it that way, it comes across sometimes, well, the really spiritually mature people do it the way I do. As a pastor, that attitude is even worse than the Pharisees because at least they had hundreds of years of tradition to back them up. What can happen, especially when a pastor gets all the podcasts and all the book deals, is that his opinion becomes law within the theological circles that are under him or that he influences. Humility in the mold of Jesus, divesting rights, letting go of power, directing all attention back to the Father and not to himself. That is what we need. So those are the three contrasts of faithful shepherding. What does it mean to exercise oversight in the mold of Jesus? And now we see the time frame of faithful shepherding. We'll go through these rather quickly. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears. It's amazing, before we look at the content of this statement, how short this list of contrasts are. If you read through the founding documents or the, the governing documents that I'm proposing, the pastor's covenant is pretty long. It gives us two verses. 
And of course, it's not exhaustive, right? There's a lot more the Bible says about what faithful shepherding is. But it's a representation or a summary of the total job description. There's a whole lot he does not say. You could have added, and make sure you plant a lot of churches. Make sure you grow your church at a, at a desirable growth rate. Make sure if you're given to study that you go to seminary. Make sure that this and that. No. It's not on compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then right to the last day, just keep on keeping on with basic faithfulness. There's so much energy spent by pastors on doing those extra things. They're not necessarily sinful, and I'd love to do some of them. But that glorious, robust faithfulness, that's what Jesus did. And it's what we must do. And why must these under-shepherds that Jesus has given focus on that glorious and robust basic faithfulness and not get sidetracked by other things? Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The great shepherd of the sheep who owns all of them by right of creation and redemption. He will return suddenly for His flock. I love that He says, when. When He appears. My goodness, this adds such gravity to the work. When you're a kid, maybe a little bit older, there are times when your parents leave you at home and entrust you with responsibilities. Make sure X, Y, and Z rooms are clean by the time I come home. And they give you a time, sometimes even down to the minute, when they'll return. So you can just goof off as long as you want and then power clean the last 15 minutes until they come back. Pastors don't have that luxury. Because we don't know. We don't know. Jesus the Lord, the Master of all things, who bought the sheep by His own blood, will come with a very special interest. Might I say this is at the top of His list of interests when He returns to inspect the health and quality of His flock. He will judge the shepherds more harshly, more stringently, more strictly, he is more exacting towards men who have power and authority in the church because he loves the sheep and he cares about how they're treated. He wants some return on investment that he blesses these men, these elders, with because he loves the sheep. Will the sheep be malnourished through poor teaching? Will the sheep be devouring each other through bickering and bitterness? Will the sheep be eating poisonous plants because they were not led to green pastures? Will the flock of God be presented to Him mature in Christ? These are the line items at the very top of Jesus' agenda when He comes back. So, the framework of pastoring 
is not the next five years or the next ten years or the next twenty. It is the day of Jesus Christ. And all that we have to do, all that we must do with every effort is to be ready for that day. Because the master will return to his house at an hour the servant does not expect. The senior pastor is Jesus Christ. And his coming, when he comes to get his flock, that's the end goal. That's the terminus of all shepherding work. This is the posture of faithful shepherding. Well, I woke up today. It's a new day. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So let's spend what time and energy we have to get his sheep ready for him. That's it. That's everything. And then we see the reward for faithful shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, you, referring to the elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. The idea, I believe, is implied here as a conditional. If you shepherd in this faithful way, the crown of glory, the special wreath of glory, will be yours. When the chief pastor, the senior pastor, shows up, you will be rewarded if you shepherd in the mold of his ministry. The imagery is that of a wreath awarded as a trophy. This is what one commentator said. Literally, it is an amaranth crown of glory made from the amaranth flower, a red blossom whose color was unfading. The crown was an image well known for the first century Greco-Roman world. For a wreath of leaves worn on the head was commonly awarded to those who won athletic competitions. A similar wreath, but made of gold, was frequently given as a reward for civic benefactors. So the irony is those that are made exiles by the expulsion of the world are now, at the last day, going to be awarded and recognized. But I thought all Christians got a crown of glory. It's not just for pastors, right? Absolutely. This crown of glory is not just for pastors. The idea is this. Every Christian must run the race well. Every Christian has their race to run. And if you'll permit an analogy, becoming a shepherd, in addition to being a Christian, is like signing up for an additional event at the Olympics. And you've got to run that race well. In God's economy, you get the unfading crown of glory by being faithful not by being faster, stronger, better than the other guy. Faithfulness. And we also see the proper response to faithful shepherds. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is not just a matter of being older or younger. Rather, this is talking about the flock under the care of under shepherds to submit to them. Several things grammatically going on to justify that, but we won't get down in the weeds. Here's another commentator. Official elders of the church were naturally chosen from those who held seniority in the faith, which most often also corresponded to physical age. Those not yet qualified to be elders were younger in standing in the church. The term used here for younger therefore refers to those who are not elders, that is to say, all other church members. The series is not mainly about that concept. We've spoken about it before. It's mainly about faithful shepherding, what a heart of a true shepherd is. So we won't spend a ton of time here. Plus, it's pretty awkward. How do you do all of that 
not being domineering, not being in it for shameful gain, uh, and simultaneously be the one to say, and you have to submit to my leadership. In the wise words of Bandit Healer, it's a hard one to get right. Balance those. But nonetheless, it is God's wisdom that the one who is under obligation to serve in the mold of the ministry of Jesus is also the one to preach the idea of submission. I'm a congregationalist by conviction, which means that I believe the congregation appoints, holds accountable, and removes its own leaders. But submission, and this applies to all areas of biblical submission, submission, if you always do what you want to do anyway, and you never defer, or when you do defer, it's with a humph and a bad attitude, it's not submission. Here is how I word this balance in the draft constitution. The congregation possesses the power to appoint and remove its own pastors. Yet while a pastor is in good standing, the congregation shall submit to them, follow their leadership, and defer to their wisdom in matters relating to the church. I'm telling you this because it's there, and it is for your good. Now, to qualify that even, we get this statement. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This verse, the rest of verse 5, sets us up for the next section. You see in verse 6, he continues talking about humility. And I think that's why it's included in this previous section, because ending on submission doesn't sound the best. Oh, and by the way, do what I say, amen. Let's take up an offering. The command for humility here, though, is for leaders as well. It looks backwards to the section regarding leaders, and it looks forward to the section regarding all of us. We have to have humility and leadership, as I've already said, following in the example of, of Jesus. And my concern is I see a lot of stuff out there that's published and talked about and paraded around where humility in leadership in the church is seen as weakness. And I want that to have no place in our church. We've got to be unwavering on truth, but still gentle and lowly like Jesus. Without the same authority that Jesus had, right? That's part of the key, acknowledging that we don't possess the same authority that the senior pastor did. We're under shepherds indeed. But we have to balance the duty of leadership and oversight with a posture or mindset and attitude of humility, and it's hard to get right. Looking forward, he tells us that all of us are to be humble towards one another. Humility, then, he, he says it here, all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. What you owe to every person in this room is humility. Our rights culture cuts against this very difficultly. If all we're focused on, on what we're, is, is on what we're owed and what other people owe to us and how they should behave around us, it's very hard to feel or sense the gravity of what you owe to other people, especially if it's humility. We will see Peter's definition of humility in a few weeks when we resume our study on 1 Peter. 
But humility, I believe the point here is to especially apply it to the role of shepherds. And the point, I believe, is this. Any shepherd, any under-shepherd is only ever always a sheep. The example of Jesus is instructive for us here that while he was, or though he was in the form of God, he did not insist on maintaining the rights or privileges of divinity. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant in lowly flesh and gave himself in obedience even unto death. That's the example of humility for all shepherds. And I want to end, close then, on the high stakes of pride and humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You could rephrase it this way. God opposes all that is high and lofty, and he really, really enjoys lifting up the downcast, the humble. This is what God says through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 2, verse 17. Speaking about the day of the Lord, the day when the chief shepherd appears, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You know, if you're even just basically familiar with the flow of biblical history and the stories, There are several themes that stand out, and one of the top five or ten is this, that God hates pride. He hates it. I mean, it it, it is burning off the pages in the prophets especially. He hates pride, but he loves humility. He loves it. And that is the issue at play here. God opposes the proud. You could rephrase it this way. If you're proud, he will make himself your enemy. He will strong arm against you because you've lifted yourself up in pride. But he gives grace to the humble. With a being so powerful as God in the universe, who is even over the universe, and knowing that he is deeply concerned about everything you do, and interested in knowing the righteousness or unrighteousness of every single act and thought, how can you be on his good side? Humble yourself. Pride is the great hindrance to faith. Why do some people not believe? They're proud. And it is the great hindrance to growth in the church. It is the hindrance to blessing. It is the hindrance to rewards now and in eternity. Pride is the hindrance to thrilling marriages. It is the hindrance to growing up in the faith and in life. It is the hindrance to good shepherding. And it is the hindrance to receiving the care of good shepherds. And worst of all, worst of all, if you could just sense the gravity of this, pride is a hindrance to grace. The one thing you need in all the universe to change your destiny is the grace of God. And pride cuts you off from grace. Will you not humble yourselves and submit to the care and rule of the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, please humble us by your spirit. Especially myself. With the weighty responsibility of following these commands from the Apostle Peter. And for those who desire the same. Give us humility like the Lord Jesus. And summon, summon men who will know that it is not more complicated than your book makes it. We need men who will be faithful and humble and gentle and caring like the Lord Jesus. Please remind us that we were always only ever sheep, part of your flock. And for all of us, give us humility towards you generally, not even in our capacity of leadership or not leadership, just give us humility towards you that we would submit ourselves to the care and leadership of the Lord Jesus and be his disciple indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.